Thank you very much, Judith. Well, it's a delight to be with you again here today. I was over here on Wednesday uh, speaking at the honey, your honeycomb meeting. And I'll just pop this mobile phone there. Whose is this? There you go. And uh, I'm going to be speaking about the cross this morning. <clears throat> but before I do, I just wanted to say a special thank you for uh, the big fun day that you had the other Saturday. I'm sure you've been thanked before. Now, my, all my family came over, grandchildren, sons and daughter, and in-laws, and everybody came over, which was great. And <clears throat> our eldest son, Andy, likes his kebabs. Uh, he's always loved his kebabs, and uh, he has his favorite kebab vans in Wickham. And he said to me afterwards, he said, the kebab that I had at the Big Fun Day is the best kebab I have ever had. Praise indeed. So if you were involved in making the kebabs, just raise your hands so I can... Anybody here involved in making the kebabs? Wow. Perhaps it was an angel then. Some have entertained angels unawares, so it could have been an angel kebab. Right, let's get into the word of God. I'm going to read some excerpts from John's Gospel, chapter 19. I'm not going to read the whole Gospel, but I'm going to read quite a significant portion. So chapter 19, I'm going to start by reading verses 1 to 18, and then I'm going to jump around a bit. So this is the occasion, Pilate, is Jesus is before Pilate. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Now I'm going to jump to verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, 
I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now I'm going to jump again to verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who, had er- who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So that's the word of God, and I was on holiday recently, hence the tan, and I was thinking when I was on holiday about how in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, it says this, it says, you know everything I say before I start the first sentence. And I thought, well, that's incredible. What does that tell me about the greatness of God? If he knows everything that I'm going to say before I say it, so he knows what I'm thinking. And then I thought, well, if that's true, then it's true of all of us here today in this auditorium. That God knows everything that you're thinking. And we sang earlier, didn't we? To your hearts are open. Nothing here is hidden. And then I thought, there are 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. Now, if God knows everything that they are thinking and knows exactly what they're going to say before they say it, what does it tell me about something about his greatness? And I was reminded of part of a comedy film that I saw a few years ago where the main character is having a difficult time in his life and he rants against God, putting the blame on God and saying to God, in effect, I could do things better than you. So God decides to give him some of his powers. I said, it's a bit of a comedy. And he wakens up one day, the guy, Bruce is his name. And this is what happens. So basically what's happening to him is he is beginning to hear all the prayers of everybody in the world and he just can't cope. And uh, again, it just illustrates something of the greatness of God. It's difficult to get our head around God's surpassing greatness. Charles Wesley in his great hymn writes, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine." So this morning, I want to explore three aspects of the cross, and they are this. One, the cross is mysterious. Two, the cross is foolishness. And three, the cross is powerful. So the cross is mysterious, the cross is foolishness, and the cross is powerful. So I want to look at the first one. The cross is mysterious. 
So Jesus comes as both fully God and fully man. He doesn't have a split personality, i.e. one minute he's God and the next he acts as a man. No, he is both perfectly in one person. And uh, the disciples found it incredibly hard to get their mind around that. And they spent a long time with Jesus. Philip says, show us the Father. In other words, what's God really like? Now, we've seen what you've done, but what's, what's God really like? Now, tell us. What's he really like? And Jesus, in effect, tells him, if you've seen me, you've seen exactly what God is really like. He says in John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. And Jesus always amazes me when I begin to think about him. And I think about him from time to time. And something to do with his, to use the, the word from the hymns, ineffable character. Something that I can't understand. Something of his greatness. For example, there's a, a little girl, 12 years old I believe. And she, she dies and the people are mourning her. And Jesus goes into the room and raises the little girl from the dead. And the people outside have been wailing because she's dead. And Jesus raises her to life again. And then he says something which I've puzzled about. He says to the family, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Now that to me says something about Jesus' love and his kindness and his gentleness. He doesn't think like we think. He cleanses a man with leprosy. And then he says to him, don't tell anyone. You imagine if that kind of thing was happening in the churches in Wickham or, or Amersham, that people were being raised from the dead and cured of incurable diseases. I'm sure it would hit the headlines somewhere. Jesus is tra- transfigured on a mountaintop where his clothes are dazzling white and his face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance and God the Father speaks audibly. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, he says to his disciples, he now don't tell anyone. He almost wants to cloak his greatness. He enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey where many believe in him, but he doesn't entrust himself to them. They're shouting his praises, Hosanna to the son of David as he enters the city. But Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in the human heart. He knows that a few days hence they'll be saying, crucify him, crucify him. The first person he appears to after the resurrection is a former prostitute. Whose testimony in court would count for absolutely nothing. And yet he chooses to reveal himself to her. Tells me something about his greatness. He's amazing. And here in this passage that I've read. Pilate says to Jesus. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power. Either to free you or to crucify you. Jesus answered. You would have no power over me. If it were not given to you from above. Jesus sees a greater power above Pilate. And even when both Jews and Gentiles and non-Jews gang up against Jesus, he knows they're unwittingly going to fulfill God's purposes. And Jesus could call down a legion of angels to strike them dead if he wanted. But he comes. He comes as a lamb to the slaughter. He allows his own creation to turn against him. I'll tell you what. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. 
And yet it's very interesting that none of the gospel writers go into the gory details of Christ's physical suffering or the barbarism of him being flogged or the barbarism of his crucifixion. The gospel writers are quite sparing in the details about the physical agony when it comes to the crucifixion. Now, many of you here, I'm sure, have seen the film uh, The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did. And how many people have seen that, by the way, just out of curiosity? A few, a few. Okay. Well, if you haven't, in that film, he does go into the barbarism of it all. He does show the gory details of what Christ may well have suffered. Hence the fact that the film got an 18 certificate. But the gospel writers don't do that. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over them over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Very sparing. Jesus is not after our pity, but he is after our response to what he's done. I'll say more about that later. The the cross is mysterious, because God himself comes. The word, think about it, who was there in the beginning. We sang that earlier. The word who was there in the beginning. He comes. The bright and morning star, as he's called. He comes. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes. The fairest of 10,000. He comes. The one who creates the atomic structure of your body and who breathes life into every living thing and sustains the universe by his word of power, he comes. He comes and he allows himself to be despised, to be rejected, and to be cursed by his own creatures. Well, if that's not a mystery, I don't know what is. And not only that, but there's something that he experiences while on the cross, which is completely unfathomable to anyone who's ever lived. He experiences a mysterious rupture in the relationship that there is in the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My God, my God, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? We don't fully understand what's going on here. It's a mystery. But Jesus goes to the cross willingly. He says elsewhere in John's gospel, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Why does Jesus do it? He does it out of a profound love. He does it out of a profound love, first of all, for the Father. I always do what pleases him, Jesus said. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus goes to the cross out of a profound love and obedience to the will of the Father. He also does it out of a profound love for you and me. It's a mystery. The gospel writer writes in one of his letters, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's a mystery. Something that God planned before the foundation of the world. Do you know, it's wonderful to think that this morning, in this town in June, that none of us here are here by chance. 
Not one single person in this room. You're not here by chance. But you're here by divine purpose. And who knows that even today, the Lord will be speaking to you. And maybe just want to strengthen your faith. Strengthen your love for him. Or maybe today the Lord is going to say, you need to see me for the first time as who I really am. The cross is mysterious. The cross is actually foolishness as well. God chooses something that is apparently foolish. The cross, why? Why does he do that? The truth of what Jesus has done on the cross is not apprehended through human wisdom. It's not apprehended through human intelligence. It's not something which can be bought. You don't have to have a certain social standing to get it. You don't have to have a certain amount of wealth to get it. Anyone can get it. The cross cuts across all those things. It's not earned by reciting the Old Testament. It's not earned by going on a pilgrimage. It's not earned by fasting for 40 days or giving to the poor or by a good enough prayer life. It's apprehended by faith. It's apprehended by trusting in what God says. It's apprehended by believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. It's apprehended by realizing that we can never make ourselves good enough. Most religions of the world say that, if not all of them, say that we need human effort to get to God. It's like some big mountain that we have to climb to get to the very pinnacle of it before we can reach God. Or in the Buddhist case, it's nirvana. You have to do this and that and the other in order to get to this place of emptiness, which they call nirvana. Get to the top of the mountain and you will see what God is like or you will enter into permanent ecstasy, whatever it is. But Christianity is not like that. Christianity is Jesus coming down the mountain himself towards us. It's Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. It's Jesus when the prodigal son wants to eat the pig swill, that the Holy Spirit comes and wakens him up to the truth and he needs to get his life sorted out. In Psalm 40 verse 2 it says, He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He did it. I'll tell you this, as a young man, 20 years of age, I was not seeking God. I wasn't in a church. My Christian background was, to say minimal, is to uh, big it up, really. My mother was a nominal Catholic. My father was an unbeliever. We never went to church. Perhaps the odd wedding, I can't remember. It had no effect on me whatsoever. I remember as well as a teenager growing up in Aberdeen in Scotland when we had to go to a church service. I think it might have been Easter time at one time. And I remember just skipping it. It just truanted. Preferred going to play snooker at the YMCA. Then go to church and be bored to tears. As a young man of 20, I wasn't seeking the Lord. I was in the slimy pit. But you know what the problem was? The problem was this. I didn't even know I was in the slimy pit. Jesus came and he opened my eyes to see who he really is. And that made all the difference in my life. The cross is foolishness. But it's God's way of salvation. The Apostle John tells us it was the day of preparation of the Passover. 
Now this was very significant. Because the Passover was the festival when the people of God remembered their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Passover was the time when the angel of death, or called the destroyer in the NIV, touched the Egyptians' firstborn sons and firstborn animals. But the people of God were told to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel. And then when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, they would pass over. But of course, the lamb pointed to the one who was called the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, cried out, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So the foolishness of the cross sees Jesus as the Lamb of God shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sin. It's foolishness, but it's apprehended by faith. You might say it doesn't make sense. Well, God decreed that the penalty for sin was death. And as our representative, when Adam sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, God sentenced him to die. And so death entered the world. But now Christ, by dying, has paid the penalty for our sin if we choose to accept it. Jesus came to take upon himself our sin on the cross. Seems foolish, but that's God's way of doing it. It was both a physical event that happened to Christ. He was nailed to the cross. His hands and feet were pierced. His side was pierced. It was a physical event. But it had great spiritual significance. Let me give an example of that. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar, who was not emperor of Rome at that time, he was a governor north of Italy at that time in southern Gaul. He was a governor and he led an army there and he wanted to come back to Italy. Now, the Senate in Rome said, yes, you can come back, but you have to disband your army and you must not cross the border between southern Gaul and Italy with your army. And there was a river, a small river that marked the boundary and the river was called the Rubicon, which has entered into English language, but we won't get into that now. So, He was not allowed to cross the Rubicon River with his army. If he did, it would mean there was going to be a declaration of war between him and the Senate. So what did Caesar decide to do? Well, he decided he was going to come across the Rubicon with his army. A physical event. Just walk across the shallow river with his army. A physical event, but it had a massive significance because he went to war against the Senate and eventually he won and became emperor. Jesus on the cross went to war against the powers of darkness. It was a physical event but it had a massive spiritual implications. Which brings me on to my third point which is this. The cross is powerful. Verse 30 of chapter 19. When he had received the drink Jesus said It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What was finished? The work Jesus set out to do. To sacrifice his life so that we could be forgiven and welcomed back into the presence of our heavenly father. Jesus had taken the punishment for our sin and a new creation was beginning. When Jesus died, symbolically, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem, big curtain 30 feet high, I think, and thick, 
was torn from top to bottom. And this symbolized the fact that the way into the Holy of Holies, the, the sanctuary of Almighty God himself, the inner sanctuary of Mighty God, the way was opened by what Jesus had done. Which surely should give you and me some confidence as we approach the eternal throne. I wonder what you're facing in your life right now. I wonder what problems you've got in your life. Maybe they're physical. Maybe they're mental. Maybe it's family problems. Maybe it's, it's uh, to do with work. We can boldly approach God's throne because of what Christ has done. The cross is powerful. And we can receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Do you have a time of need in your life right now? Are you facing a time of need? One of the things I've noticed as I've been reading through the Bible again this year, as I've noticed as I read the Psalms, that they're always crying out to the Lord. They're always revealing what's in their inner heart. They're not holding back. They're giving it full welly as it were. Because they know that God is here and God is thinking, how much more us? Because we've got a greater revelation than they ever had. Things into which the prophets of old longed to look have now been revealed to us. The mystery of the cross revealed to us. Mystery. It is mystery all. God comes and sacrifices his life. Despised by us. Rejected by us. Cursed by us. It's a mystery. But it's his means of salvation. It's so foolish. Who would have thought a man dying on a cross is the means whereby God is going to begin this new creation. He's not going to let it fall into ruin. It's still in his hands. And if the creation is in his hands, we are part of that. You're in his hands. Even though the cross is foolish, it's powerful. It's powerful because of what Jesus has done. He's made a way. It is finished. What was finished? The blood that Jesus shed on the cross that meant our sins are forgiven. If we choose to accept his sacrifice. Maybe you're hearing this for the first day. Maybe you're one who's sitting on the fence. I want to tell you this, please don't sit on a fence. It's not a very comfortable place to be. I sat on fences in the past. It ain't comfortable. Get off the fence. You know, in the Old Testament, there's an episode where one day the people are worshipping foreign gods. The next minute they're worshipping God himself. Then they would go back to the foreign gods. Then they would worship God. Elijah the prophet says, why, why do you go limping? Why do you go limping with two opinions? Maybe some people here today, that's, that's who you are, sitting on the fence. I believe through me, Jesus might say to you, no, don't sit on the fence, come. Come and follow me. Get off the fence and put your trust in me. All my sin, all my shame, all my guilt, we sing that song, died with him on the cross. Thank you, Lord. You mean all my guilt? Yes. All my sin? Yes, well, even that, even that deep, dark, hidden one, yes, all my sin, all my shame, all my guilt. But do you know what the problem is? The problem is this, that the ghosts of the past often raise their ugly heads. And I want to tell you this, they're very ugly. And from time to time, you might find that a ghost of the past comes back to haunt you, as it were. Comes back to say, well, you know, Do you remember you did that? Do you remember you said that? Do you remember this happened in your life? The cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. You can say that to any ghost. It is finished. All my guilt. All my sin. All my shame. What? All of it? Or maybe it's it's just 99%. I can see that's 99. But the other 1%, I need to work really hard. 
to get rid of that. I need to work really hard to get rid of that guilt. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to be involved in restitution. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying these ghosts can cripple our faith if we let them. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Let's say that together. It is finished. Let's say it again. It is finished. Jesus died on the cross. He said, it is finished. The cross is powerful. I'm no longer an enemy of God, but born again. Not through my will, actually. You're born again if you've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're not born again through your own will, but you're born again through the will of God. Hallelujah. If you're born again through the will of God, I wonder who's holding your faith in his hands. It is finished, Jesus said. I'm no longer an enemy of God, but it's not based on my own merit. It is based on the merit of Jesus. I've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. My feet are no longer stuck in the slimy pit. Thank you, Lord. But set upon the rock, which is Christ. Your feet, if you've given, given Jesus permission to be Lord and Savior, are no longer in the slimy pit. The devil would say, ah, yes, but you, I've got a toehold there. No, no. Jesus has taken you out of the slimy pit. He's transferred you 100% out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Not 50%, not 99.9999 repeating percent. He has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and he's put you into the kingdom of light. Amen? Do you believe it? It is finished. It is finished. Jesus says, Do you sometimes feel that your grip on the Lord is tenuous, is slipping, and it happens to me from time to time, but I love it when we sing that song and reaffirm the truth, oh Lord, you never let go, you never let go of me, and whenever we sing that song, my heart rises, you never let go of me, thank you Lord, I might be slipping sometimes, my grip might be tenuous, I might feel I've got fingertips on the cliff edge, but you never let go of me, it is finished. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. It is finished. What seemed to be a defeat is, in fact, a victory over the powers of darkness. After the resurrection... The disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't realize it was Jesus walking alongside. And they expressed their disappointment because they saw the crucifixion as an end and as a defeat. We had hoped. Didn't you know what was going on in Jerusalem? Hadn't you heard anything they said to Jesus? Ha, ha, ha. Didn't you know? Fancy saying that to Jesus. Didn't you, hadn't, didn't, didn't you hear? <laughs> I wonder what Jesus was thinking then. Did he have a smile as well, I wonder? It seemed to be a defeat, but Jesus is untouchable. It was impossible for death to hold him. It could not hold him. Because death was the punishment for sin. And Jesus was completely sinless. The Lamb of God. Death could not hold him, we sang earlier. The veil tore before him. Praise God. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. 
But death's stranglehold on humankind was broken at the resurrection. It could not hold the sinless one. Jesus has fulfilled all that was written about him in the Old Testament. It is finished. Jesus said earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Thank you, Lord. You've broken every chain. The toughest chain of all to break was the power of death. No greater chain, no stronger chain than the power of death. Think of the chains that could bind people, the addictions and all the things that bind people. But death was the one thing that was inescapable. Jesus has broken it. He's broken every chain. He's broken the power of death. Hallelujah. And when I die, when you die, if you've committed your life to Christ, you will go from death to life. Hallelujah. This day you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the thief on the cross. So how should we respond to what Jesus did? The cross demands a response from us. Well, certainly gratitude. We need to be grateful to the Lord. You know, these times when we meet together and we worship together, they're so important. I, hate, I don't like missing them. And I love to be led in worship. And I, I felt this morning as we were worshiping the Lord, I felt that heaven was touching the feet of earth. My feet were on the earth, but my spirit was being touched by heaven. And at one point, I had shivers just going up and down my whole body as we were singing the Lord. And I just wanted to stand on my chair, but I thought, no, you can't do that. (laughs) Making an exhibition of yourself like that. What will the people think? So I didn't stand on my chair. Perhaps if we do another song, I might. We'll see if I'm brave. But I'll probably do it at the back of the room so nobody can see. But yeah, gratitude is a response that we should have to what God has done. And to live this new life that God has given us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that isn't so self-absorbed. Sin tends to make us self-absorbed. When the Lord comes into our life, he tends to open us up to look at the needs and concerns of others. It's not to say that we don't have our own needs and concerns, but you get what I'm saying, I think. I wonder, are you going through difficulties in your life? Then recognize that Jesus knows And he understands so you can approach his throne of grace with confidence to find the help you need. Perhaps you've never yet committed your life to Christ. Well, I want to say today might be your day. Can I ask you, if you've never committed your life to Christ, can I ask you to do it right now? Don't sit on the fence. Don't go limping with two opinions. Can I just ask us all to just close our eyes for a moment? And give someone or people here just an opportunity. If, if you feel, yeah, I get what you're saying, Ron. I've been sitting on the fence. I want to get off. Could you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you briefly. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just raise your hand if that's you. Thank you. Thank you. Now can you put your hand down? Lord, you know our frailty. You know our fears. You understand us. And Father, for those who have been sitting on the fence, I pray, I ask that the Holy Spirit will just very kindly, right now, come upon them, bless them, open their eyes to see the wonder and the splendor of who you are. And I pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. So you might find it helpful to talk with someone about why you put your hand up today after the meeting. And I think